Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Well, good morning, everybody. Do you have Bibles? Titus. Titus chapter 2. So let's look at this passage that we have, uh, we have just been reading. And our, uh, our theme this semester is equipped for every good work. There are two things that uh, Christians have sometimes had trouble keeping in balance. And that is our doctrine and our practice. Uh, what we believe and how we behave, or Christian theology and Christian living. Now, one of the main things of the pastoral epistles and one of the main things of the book of Titus is uh, how we keep these two things together. The very first verse in Titus, uh, Paul speaks about the, uh, the, the truth which is according to godliness, the truth which is according to godliness. And then in the verse before our passage today, he says that we are to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, by how we live. So in Titus 2, Paul has been speaking to different groups of Christians And he has specific instructions as far as their behavior. Young men, old men, uh, older women, younger women, and then slaves. So in these verses that we've just been reading, he gives us the theological basis for our Christian living. So adorn the gospel with your good works. Uh, What is the theological basis for our our Christian living. Uh, In verse 14, he says that we are to be zealous for good works. But what will make us zealous for good works? What he says in these verses is that it is the truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel of the grace of God that will make us zealous for good works. The French commentator Speak calls this the heart of the epistle of Titus and uh, a summary of Christian theology. It is a, a rich statement about the gospel, and it is the gospel that is going to transform us so that we can live godly lives. In other words, Paul not only tells us uh, how we are to live, he also tells us why, are we are, why we are to live this way. And this is normal for Paul in his letters. Uh, he will often present a doctrinal portion of, of, his, uh, of his letters, or he be, will begin with a, a doctrinal portion, and then he shows how that doctrine is to be lived out in our lives. He does that in Romans. He does that in Ephesians. Now, here in Titus... He, uh, rev- he does the same thing, but he reverses the order. 
At the beginning of Titus 2, we have the practice. Now, in verses 11 to 14, we have the doctrine that is the basis of that practice. So he says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Now, I want you to notice in verse 11, the word appear, and then that word appear also is found in verse 13. He says, in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to, to all men. When did the grace of God appear, bringing salvation to all men? Here he's really referring to the first coming of Christ. And uh, when uh, Christ came, it includes his incarnation, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his present ministry, the grace of God has appeared. Verse 13 says that we Christians are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's referring to the second coming of Christ. So we have the two appearings of Christ. His appearing at his first coming, and we have his appearing at his second coming the appearing of grace, and the appearing of glory. Now look at verse 12. Verse 12 is how we are to live our life in the present age. And we are living between these two appearings of Christ. And both of these appearings of Christ affect how we are to live in this present age. These are the two focal points, the great focal points for our Christian life. We look back to what Christ has done in the past, and we look forward to what it will be like when he comes in the future. And this is the basis for our power and for our motivation for godly living. So... Look at what he says here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, Paul says uh, that the grace of God appeared. Jesus was the word who became flesh. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That grace, that grace brings salvation. That grace brings salvation. It teaches us how to be saved. Now, when it comes to salvation, there are two basic, fundamentally different types of religious systems in the world. Uh, there is the system of grace and the system of works. All all religions fit into one of these two systems. They are systems of grace and they are systems of works. Most religions are systems of works. Uh, how do you get salvation? How do you get right with God? Almost every religion outside of Christianity that you can, that you can name will be a, a system of works. Uh, you get right with God by the kind of works that you do. And these works, 
these works that you get for salvation can be two kinds of works. Uh, there are religious works, and then there are moral works. For many religions, it is not your moral works, your behavior or your character that will get you into a right relationship with God and bring you salvation. It is your religious practices, uh, religious rituals, prayers, sacrifices, ceremonies. Uh, for the ancient Greeks, being a religious person didn't have anything to do with how you lived your daily life. It's whether you offered up the right sacrifices and you prayed the right prayers and attended the, the feasts and the ceremonies. That was what made a religious person. And you see some religions like that today. When you look at these extremist Muslims who are, uh, who are, are, are setting off bombs and, uh, and doing things like that, they're very religious. They pray to Mecca, toward Mecca, five times a day. They fast at Ramadan. They go to the mosque regularly. And they, then they become suicide bombers and kill innocent people, women and children. And by this, they think that they are going to gain heaven with dozens of virgins to be their wives. Those are religious practices. Long before you were born, there were a, a series of three movies, the Godfather movies. And they, they vividly presented the Don, the head of the mafia, in church while his henchmen, under his orders, were going out and killing people. They were doing the religious works, but it didn't affect their life in any way. Now, for many religions, it is religious works that will make you acceptable to God. For other religions, it is moral works that will make you acceptable to God, and you can uh, gain your salvation that way. It is by becoming a, a good person, by being a good neighbor. It is by your... Uh, social actions uh, that improve society is being, by being a, a kind and a generous, genu genu generous person that you will become uh, acceptable to God. So there are religious works and there are moral works, which these works, religions, are used for a person to think that he tries to gain salvation. Now, the grace system is, is very different. What makes Christianity different from every other religion of the world is that it is not a work system of, of salvation. It is a, a grace system. So the Bible says that we have sinned against God. The wages of sin is death. We are lost. We are separated from God. We deserve to die. And the works religions say that what you have to do to become acceptable to God is do your religious works or do your moral works. 
But the Bible says that you cannot work your way into God's favor. One of the great verses of Titus is in the next chapter, uh, Titus 3.5. He says, it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy that have saved us. So these are two fundamentally different kinds of religions and ways of salvation, either by works or by grace. Now, for us today, the question is this. What is it that is going to produce godliness and moral living? Is it going to be your works system of religion or is it going to be your grace system of religion? Most people assume that uh, if you do not gain God's approval and God's blessing by your works, uh, then there is no reason to do any good works. <laughs> uh, Paul faced this attitude in his, in his own preaching when he preached that the gospel, that salvation comes by the grace of God, not by works. In Romans 6, people were asking, well, if salvation is by grace and not by works, should we continue in sin in order that grace might abound? And Paul says, I cannot imagine a more horrendous thought than to think that we should continue in sin that uh, grace might abound. People think that if we do not gain salvation by our works, then why not just enjoy our sin and let God in his grace forgive us more and more? You know what Paul is saying here? He is saying it is the gospel, the gospel of grace that changes our lives and makes us better. It is not your works religions that will make you a better person. Uh, it is not a works religion that will make people better, society better. It is the grace of God. You notice how he says this in verse, uh, in verse 12? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Most of our translations have teaching us or instructing us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It is the grace of God that teaches us how to live godly lives. It teaches us how to live a godly life in this present age evil age. Now look at verse 12. Do you notice that the teaching of grace involves both the negative and the positive, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? Uh, that's negative. Uh, renouncing, denying means saying no to certain things, repudiating certain things. I think a lot of people think that uh, grace 
is something which uh, means being lack, lacks, not very strict. Uh, you might hear somebody say, don't be so strict. Show a little grace. Uh, but here, do you notice grace is intolerant? Grace is intolerant. It is intolerant of two things. It is intolerant of ungodliness, and it is intolerant of worldly lusts. And when Paul speaks about ungodliness, he's basically speaking about sin against God. When he speaks about worldly lusts, worldly lusts are the desires and the goals and the values and the ambition of, ambitions of this world. Uh, these are the things that leave God out of the picture. Uh, Chrysostom, who was a, uh, a great preacher back in the 400s AD, says that these are the things that will not pass over with us when we leave this present world. The world passes away, and these are the things that will pass away with it. With it. Uh, William Barclay says, these are the things that we cannot show to God. Look at your life. Is there anything in your life that you really wouldn't like God to see? I think there are all things in all of our lives we wouldn't like other people to see, much less God. Uh, so Paul says uh, that we deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Now notice, uh, Paul does not give us a list of what these worldly desires or what these worldly lusts are. I think if he tried to catalog every one of them, then Titus would not only be, would, would be the biggest, the largest book in the Bible. Uh, uh, the fact is that the specifics of worldly lusts are going to change from generation to generation. They're going to change from society to society, from culture to culture. We live in a prosperous American culture. And uh, when you look at the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, the things that tempt us in these areas, we're in a society that is, that, that is on a mad quest for a personal peace and happiness. And so we pursue money, pleasure, ambition, prestige. Uh, if you lived in a war-torn Society. If you lived in a society or you were living in destitute poverty, the things that would tempt you would not be the luxuries of life. They would be the, the bare necessities. And you might be tempted to use uh, evil or immoral means to gain those, to gain those things. So... Paul is saying that negatively, grace teaches us to be intolerant of ungodliness and worldly lust. Now, positively, the teaching of grace involves three areas. It teaches us to live 
self-controlled, uh, or to live soberly, upright, and godly in this present age. Uh, soberly, upright, or righteously, and godly. Now, when you look at those three areas, that involves every area of life. When it says soberly or self-control, that's how we are in ourselves. Righteously relates how we live in relationship to other people. Godly relates how we live in relationship to God. And so these three things cover both our outward actions as well as our inward motives. Now, the first of these, the word that is translated soberly or self-control, is actually a hard word to translate. It comes from uh, two Greek words, uh, one of which means to be safe or to be sound, and the second word has to do with the mind, the thinking. And so the word means that what you do is based on a sound mind. You are disciplined. You don't do Dumb things. A lot of people look back on their youth. They look back on the, the days when they were your age. And they see, I can't believe what I did then. That was dumb. <laughs> Why did I do it? I just got carried away on the spur of the moment. If I had thought about it, I would not have done it. Now, grace teaches us not to do dumb things. <laughs> grace teaches us to uh, do the things that is based upon sound thinking, sound mind. That is a mind that is, that is taught by and influenced by the word of God. The second word that is found here that uh, it teaches us to live upright lives or to live righteously, that relates how we are in relationship to other people. We are to love our neighbor as ourself. And godly relates to living, uh, relates to God, living in such a way as to please God and to glorify him. And this is the climax. The negative starts with ungodliness and they move to unrighteousness, worldly lusts. And then the positive start with right thinking in relationship to self and our actions and then move to godliness. And uh, the godly life, godliness is the climax. The godly life is the life where God is the very center of our thinking and, it is the, and he is the center of our living. Whatever you do in word or deed, do what? To the glory of God. Of God. So in verses 11 and 12, Paul is looking backward. He is looking backward to the appearing of grace. It is the grace of God that came or appeared with the first coming of Christ. And that grace teaches us how to live godly lives. Now, notice in verses 13 and 14, he's looking forward. He is looking forward to the second coming of Christ when the glory of God will appear in the person of God the Son. 
And he says that as we look forward, as we take our eyes off of the things of the world and we look, look at, at, at Christ and his coming and the thought of being with him, that will affect our lives. Have you ever heard someone say that Christians are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good? That's a lie. That is an absolute lie. The Bible says, and we can see it in this passage, is that it is the Christians who are heavenly minded that are really the most earthly good. So looking for or waiting for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. You notice the verb looking or waiting? That's not the main verb of the sentence. Uh, ing words are related to other main verbs in the sentence. The main verb is the verb uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 12 that talks about our living. We live, we live looking for the blessed hope. We are living in the present, but our eye is on the future. And what we believe and, uh, about the future and what we are looking for in the future. These are the things that we're going to base our life around. And these are the things that are going to determine how we live in the present. In fact, it's only because we have this future hope that it makes any sense to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if, uh, if in this age we only have hope, we are to be pitied in our lives. The early church was motivated by the promise of Jesus Christ that he was going to come again. This was their blessed hope. It was the blessed hope. Who will appear? You notice it is our great God and Savior. Who is our great God and Savior? It is Jesus Christ himself. What has he done for us? Do you notice what Paul says? He says that he gave himself for us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave himself for us. Why? He gave himself to redeem us from all iniquity, to free us from the bondage of sin that has enslaved us. He gave himself for us to cleanse us for all sin. And we are his people. He, we are his, his own special people. It's called here a people for his own possession. We belong to him. We are his special people. And we are a people who are zealous for good works. That's why he's redeemed us. That's why he has cleansed us, that we might have a zeal for good works. Does that describe your life? 
Does that describe your attitude? Does that describe your desire? That you want to be zealous for good works. What kind of a theologian are you? Uh, how well, how well do you know your Bible doctrine? You see what Paul is saying here? He is saying that if you have really grasped the gospel, if you've really understood the biblical teaching about salvation, then we will be able to see it in your life. The grace of God has taught us to say no to sin and yes to a life of godliness. Jesus is coming again. That is our blessed hope. And if that is our blessed hope, then we will live a life of purity and holiness. You see, we live between these two appearings of Christ. The appearing of grace at his first coming and the appearing of glory, his second coming. And if we grasp the significance of these two appearings, what he has done for us in the past and what it will be like when we are with him in glory, then we will be living a godly life and we will be zealous for good works. That's what good theology is going to teach us to do. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the coming of Christ, his first coming and his second coming. And as your grace has been manifested to us and brought us to salvation, uh, we do pray that we would live in the light of what you have already done. And we do pray that we will live in the light of what will take place uh, in the future when we are glorified and with our Savior. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.